0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. I have a set of friends back in California that I spent much of my time with while I was out there. We would get together on a weekly basis as much as possible, and we would play board games and eat food, and they were they were very dear to me. They still are, I just don't see them every week anymore. But as I moved to Alabama, as I moved to Birmingham first and now Hope Hole, there were sets of friends that I uh, I met, I joined along the way. In Birmingham, there's a group of guys that I see when I'm, when I'm in Birmingham at school, and uh, we'll, we'll study together in the, same, in the same room between classes, or we'll occasionally go out to get a meal together. Uh, but these four guys are, are a great encouragement to me. But one of them recently left the school, and is no longer a part of that group. They're no, long, no longer running with us. Um, and I was with this, the remaining friends, the remnant, just a couple days ago, and one of them said, maybe you can get him to show up. Maybe you can get him to join us. And I said, I'll try. So I called him, texted him, and he said, I would love to, but I can't. I'm busy at the moment. Now, maybe you have a set of friends that you've uh, that you've joined with, that you've become a group with, and you can start to finish one another's sentences, or even if not finish them, predict them. You know exactly the kinds of jokes that will uh, just prod them enough to liven the conversation up. You know exactly when things are moving to a more mellow, uh, a more... Uh, deep level. The time when you don't want to make the jokes, or you do, but just to lighten the mood enough so that things continue to be helpful and beneficial. Perhaps you have those groups of friends, and perhaps you have lost one of those friends. Perhaps they've moved away, like I moved away from my friends. Perhaps they've died and gone to be with the Lord. Perhaps you haven't experienced that loss yet and you still have that group of friends or maybe it's even family members who still exist in community together and the, the time together, the fellowship, the, the, uh, the, the unity that you experience, the community is just sweet to your soul. C.S. Lewis says that whenever a group of friends get together, person A, person B, and person C, it's not just person A relating to person B. B and C, but there's something in person B that draws out something unique in person C, so that the two of them together are more to person A than they could be if it was just them by themselves. And I think we can understand if the, uh, if the terminology isn't too abstract, I think we can understand when you look at one friend and you see the way that they draw out the best of another friend, when you look at one friend and you you see and you know that their intelligence or their humor or uh, their ability to serve and give to another person brings that other person along from uh, from their single single vision single pane window into a multifaceted sort of uh, gem. You can turn the gem of your friend and you can see how the, when the light shines through in different ways, different aspects of their personality come come out. But it's not just for them, it's for you. It's for your benefit. You reap the gain. In my uh, group of friends in Birmingham, we've lost a friend. But it's not just a friend that we've lost. We've now lost three parts of three other individuals. With them gone, there's something missing, something that can't come back, not unless the friend does. Now, this uh, this analogy, I think, might be a little strange as we come to the start of this text in 1 Peter chapter 4. But if you hold on to it, if you keep it in the back of your mind, I think by the end you'll see a little bit of, of its intent, a little bit of why I want to pre- place this lens on the text to begin with. Because I think we have those friends, or we are those friends. So this morning, I want to encourage more than convict, but let's begin with 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read the entire text. We're going to go from verse 1 to 11, and then we're going to start back at the beginning. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Would you pray with me for one more moment? God, here now is your text, your word. You have promised that it does not return to you void. So Holy Spirit, you who first applied the word of Christ in the hearts of the apostles, as they wrote these down, may you apply it again in our hearts. May it be like rain that waters us. May we... As a result, be like flowers that bloom, beautiful in your sight, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. The first verse of this text, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, uh, it begins with this assumption that we all know the story of Jesus, and I think everybody here probably does, or at least has a pretty good grasp of some of the things that Jesus did. I was just reading a copy of an edited version of the Bible. Somebody in history uh, famously took scissors and cut out pieces of the Bible, pieces of the text from the New Testament, and you could see their Bible, and it's all patchy and uh, things crossed out, things removed. Uh, Eventually, that individual took all of the letters, took all of the words that he had remaining, and he put it into a new book, a new Bible. And he thought this Bible would be better. This Bible is the the life, the morals, the teaching of Jesus. This Bible is removed of everything that is uh, incredible, incredulous. You can't believe it. It's removed of all the miracles. It's removed of the things that people said Jesus said, but surely he didn't actually say because that's a little crazy. But this Bible, I opened it up and started reading it the other day. And it's not the same Jesus. As I looked at the the Nativity account, and it talked about Jesus fleeing to Egypt. And then it talks about Jesus growing up as a boy. And then it talks about Jesus being baptized. There is no claim of the Magi giving honor and worship. There is no claim of the prophet Isaiah who says, Out of Egypt I have called my son There is no Jesus saying, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? A Jesus removed of the prophecy, a Jesus removed from the claim that his will, his desire is to do what his father is about, is not the Jesus we believe. As Christians, we believe in the Jesus who Yes, did all of those things, but he did them for a reason and did them for a purpose. And when we look at the suffering of Jesus, it's easy for us to run to the cross before looking at the rest of the life of Jesus. But let me tell you, in those first few pages, there was suffering in the life of Jesus. You see, from the time that Jesus was born, the king of the land tried to kill him. Jesus, as a baby, as less than two years old, had to run away to a foreign land, a foreigner across borders, and live as a refugee in another camp until the king had died. Perhaps you have been removed from your home. And when he returned, and he then experienced the baptism that John gave, Immediately after, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, the text says. Into the desert he went to be tempted by the devil, the one who accuses, the one who deceives, the one who looks for every hole in our character and tries to blow it up. In the desert, Jesus had no food and no water, and he was tempted by the devil in temptation that is common to every man. And each time as he looked the devil in the face, hearing the word of God put back at him as an accusation, Jesus responded with wisdom and with the true intent of Scripture, not using the Bible for his own purposes, his own desires, but rather using the Bible for its true purpose. You see, in Jesus' the God-man, there was not just a divine being, there was a human being. And together they joined together in the one man, Jesus, the person of Jesus. But there was this divine desire, the divine will, the divine uh, urge to move toward the redemption of his people. At the same time, there was this human desire, not in conflict with the divine desire, but this human nature that needed to learn how to will, how to desire, how to choose God's will. In the person of Jesus, we have the mystery of God and humanity joined together in one man. And how does the will, how does the desire, how does the the choices, the actions of one human being align perfectly with that of God? And so Jesus in the desert, when he looked at the stone and the devil said to him, you can turn this into bread. Jesus, the human nature of Jesus, had to obey the divine nature, had to obey, had to learn obedience by saying this is not the will of God. The human had to subsume, had to put under his will, put his will under the Father, and he had to choose not to turn rock to bread. Oh, and how that probably, oh, how we would break under that to look in your hunger at a full kitchen and to say, not today. And when Jesus went to the top of the hill and the devil said, throw yourself down and God will catch you, Jesus The human nature of Jesus, you could look, you could see him, you could feel him looking down the cliff into the chasm and say, I know that God loves me, and he's right. The Bible does say, he will pick me up so that not my foot strikes a stone. I can throw myself down and prove to the devil and to everyone around me that I am who I say I am. I am the Son of God. And the human will had to look at that and say, I will not seek validation. I will subsume my will to the will of God. I will learn obedience through suffering. And although it is difficult, although I don't want to live in this uncertainty, the humanity of Jesus combined with the divinity of Jesus in perfect unity, Jesus learns obedience. And as the devil shows him the city and says, All of this can be yours if you merely bow down to me. You can imagine the temptation in the human mind of Jesus as he looks at the city and say, this is what I came here for. I came for the people here. And a physical act means almost nothing. I could bow my knee and this would all be over. He can look down that cliff, down that hill and see the city. He can see along the road, the cross is painted up and he can see where his life is headed. And he looks at the crosses. He looks at the city and says, here I have a choice. I can choose what I am here for, the easy way, the way without pain, the way without suffering, or I can choose the suffering, the pain, the cross, the death. And so the human will of Jesus learns obedience i will suffer for my people the life of jesus continues and that's not the end of his suffering as you well know as he teaches to people as he teaches to pharisees as he, as he teaches to disciples as he teaches to crowds people look at him at look at the man jesus and they say he must have a devil among him he must be possessed by something because the things that he is doing are insane Others look at him and say, look at him, he's a drunkard, he's a glutton, he hangs out with prostitutes. There is no way that this man is of any good character. Others look at him and they say, why do you forgive them? Who do you think that you are as they pick up stones and prepare to kill him? This man, Jesus, lived an entire life of suffering. It's not just the cross, but by the time he gets to the garden... Already he has spent his life running from people in a foreign land, suffering temptation and having to put his will to bed so that he can do what God desires. All this time he has been dealing with people who uh, should have known better as they see him calm the storm and they say, who is this? Only God can calm the storms. But yet they still don't understand who he is. As he looks at the cross and he knows what is coming, he is in the garden weeping and bleeding from sweat on his knees he prays to god the father god if this cup can pass let it pass don't make me suffer what i am going to suffer In the garden, he has the last opportunity to forego the cross. He has the last opportunity to get out and go a different way, to to restore what he thinks is a good human life without suffering. Disappear into anonymity and live with friends, live with family, go to weddings and make wine and do everything that is, quote, fun. But instead, he says, Not my will, but your will be done. And so again, the humanity of Jesus learns obedience to the divine decree. And Jesus, then arrested moments later, stands before Pilate silent. He is whipped and flogged And taken to the cross where he is put upon the wooden beams, nails in his hands. And as he bleeds, he offers forgiveness to all. Those around him mock him and accuse him. You saved others, save yourself. If he really is the king of Israel, why doesn't he come down from that cross? And Jesus looks at them, naked and scarred, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus dies of his own volition, of his own choice, of his own will. The humanity of Jesus and the divine Jesus in perfect unity, giving up his last breath in a great cry, saying, It is finished before he goes to the grave. In the death of Jesus, we have more than just death. We have more than just blood. We have more than just wounds and lacerations. In the death of Jesus, we have the wrath of God. Jesus' own anger, Jesus' own wrath poured in on himself, on the sin that humanity has so that he might bring redemption and restoration. He lays in the grave for three days, fully dead. And on the third day, he rises again. In the resurrection, Jesus lives a new life, and he speaks to his disciples before. He ascends to the right hand of the Father and then sends forth his Spirit. And so when we read the text in 1 Peter chapter 4, which I know we probably forgot is where we're at. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. What we're talking about is not just death. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And think about the life of Jesus. And we don't have time to look at every aspect of his life as we just did and then apply it to our own lives and see how we have been foreigners and strangers without a home. And we don't have time to look at how we have been persecuted and maligned by those who accuse us. We don't have time to look at how people question our motives when what we really want to do is serve God. We also don't have time to look at how everything that Jesus did we have failed in in a hundred different ways. But when Jesus, when, when Peter says about Jesus, as Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh, you have the same mind of Christ, what he is telling us is, is varied, multifaceted, it's, there's a lot here. What at least must be here must be that as Jesus learned obedience to the Father, so you learn obedience even in suffering. Even when you suffer unrighteously, even when you suffer as an innocent individual, when you suffer, have the same mind of Christ. Think about it the way that Jesus does. Look the devil in the eye and say, I choose not your way, but the will of God the Father. I choose not validation, but I choose faith. I choose not the satisfaction of my hunger but I choose to undergo whatever it requires so that I might do good for others. When you look at the promise, the promise of what could be yours for such a little step, say with Jesus, I will go the hard way. I will suffer for the sake of those around me. I will not grab anything that comes my way. Have this mind among you, the mind of Christ. Because everyone who has suffered in their life and in the death of Jesus, everyone who is in the life and death of Jesus, you have already suffered and you have already been brought new. Everybody who has suffered, has ceased to sin, has put sin to death, just as Jesus left it in the grave when he ascended. He took on the human flesh, sinful, and when he died, he put it in the earth, never to return again. Jesus came back fully human, yes, but he came back as a fully human individual, as a fully human person who was also fully God. He divinized human flesh. He made it godlike in its perfection. He made it perfect and innocent once again, better than Adam had ever had the opportunity to have, better than Eve. Jesus brought back humanity from the grave. So if you have suffered, If you have participated in the sufferings of Christ, we all have. Cease to sin. Perhaps you remember the story of Noah. It's in Genesis chapter 6. In the story of Noah and the ark, people are living on the earth. And. Every inclination of their heart, every desire of their heart, every want, every need, every thought of their heart is only evil all the time. They take wives as they desire. It's written from the male perspective. They take wives as they desire. They butcher and murder and betray one another. They are full of lies and deceit, and the entire earth is filled with evil of this kind, evil and wickedness, of which maybe we think that we're getting close to that we can see in the world. And God says of humanity, God says of the world, he regretted making them. That's a kind of condemnation, isn't it? That's a new kind, an unfamiliar kind. The condemnation of God upon all humanity. He regretted It would have been better had they never been made. And he selects one man and family, Noah. And he says, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world, but through you, I'm going to save it. Through you, I'm going to redeem all of the wickedness that you see in this world. I'm going to bring you through something you can't even imagine. Rain is going to fall from the sky, and water is going to come up from the ground, and the earth is going to be covered with water. want you to build a boat. So Noah begins to gather wood and he starts building this boat with his sons. And after years, this boat is prepared and it's ready. It's big and it's massive and animals two by two begin to walk into the ark led by God himself. And the animals fill up the, the ark and there's enough food for them. And Noah and his family walk in and everybody around is watching Noah on this day as he enters this boat. As people are partying halfway between their drink, they look and they mock and they joke about Noah because of the insanity of creating a boat in a place where it doesn't rain. And they continue their carousing and their debauchery. They continue their orgies and their parties and they do everything that they've always been doing. Somebody takes advantage of the moment, surely, to steal someone else's belongings. Someone takes advantage of the moment, surely, to get revenge on their brother who betrayed them. All the while Noah is walking into this boat. And the rain begins. It says that God shuts the door behind Noah. He and his family protected from the water. And over the next 40 days and 40 nights it rains and floods and the world is washed over. And Noah, after some time, sees the rain stopping, and he sends out a dove to see if there's any land on the ground where they can rest, and the dove returns a little too quickly. And then he sends out the dove some days later, and the dove returns a little bit longer. Maybe there was a branch sticking out. And another time, he sends the dove out, and the dove returns with the branch, and finally, he sends the devout and it doesn't return, and no one knows. The dry ground is there. The boat comes to rest on a mountain and they open the doors, and the animal and the family, the animals and the family walk out of the ark. This flood event. This flood event is, is uh, something that happened back with one of our forefathers, right? We all come from Noah from one of his sons, from Shem, Ham, or Japheth. It's in our heritage, this flood. But there's another flood. The Bible talks about the baptism of Jesus, but much more, it talks about our baptism as a flood. Let's read again from 1 Peter chapter 4. This is starting in verse 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The fact that this is the, the, the background of Noah is here is not just me putting this on. It's actually in chapter three, Noah, if you look back, that, just that chapter. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. As you consider your past life, as you consider your life before Christ, Before you truly trusted and fully obeyed, what was it full of? Don't answer aloud. But as you think about the way you lived your life, or maybe if it was too long ago, if you consider what you would be doing if you weren't here, if you considered what you would be doing if you didn't call yourself by the name of Christian, Or hopefully, God forbid, this isn't you. If you consider what you would be doing if you could be certain nobody would find out, the text tells us. The Bible isn't deceived, you can't pull one over on it. The Bible knows what we would be doing. Some of us would give in to drink, some of us would give in to sensuality and pleasure. Some of us would give in to thievery and covetousness, others envy and rumors. The Bible knows, the Bible knows, but this isn't a condemnation. You have suffered with Christ. The humanity of Jesus that looked at the devil and denied him is your humanity in Jesus. The Bible knows what you would do, but what's more? The Bible tells you it's no longer who you are. The gospel was proclaimed so that even us who were once dead, now made alive in Christ, that we might be judged according to humanity in one way, but we might be judged according to God in another way, by the person of his Son, Jesus, who suffered. So if anyone has suffered in Christ have the same mind of Jesus among you. Jesus, who lived the human life in a way that we never could have, the one who denied everything that we indulged in, the one who who always did what we have always failed to do, this Jesus has given you his life. If anyone has suffered, he has ceased to sin. Live in Jesus. If you have been baptized and that spirit has regenerated you, If you have new life because of the waters that you have passed through, if you can look back on your life and you know that Jesus has saved you, he has put you through the water, he has saved you onto the other side, like Noah, you begin a new life. And here is what that life looks like. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of of your prayers above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of god's varied grace your translation may say multifaceted myriad some sort of colorful word there One translation even says, rainbow. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When you look back at your life or when you consider what you might be doing, can you see the ends? Can you, can you see the means? Can you see the depth to which you would go to accomplish the evil that you once did? Can you see how you would look for every opportunity to find a way out of the consequence so that you can partake in the evil again? Can you imagine how you might look for opportunities for sin? Here is what the text says. Take every opportunity for good. If you would have given yourself so fully to what is evil, you now who have been saved through the flood, through God's generous, life-giving salvation, devote yourself all the more to the works of goodness, to the works of love, to the work of prayer, of caring, of hospitality, of giving to others, of sharing your life with them, Do not leave, do not leave grace ungiven. Do not leave grace uncompleted. Do not leave grace by itself. You have been saved. You have been saved. And here's what that salvation looks like on this side. Because God, through the person of Jesus, has purchased for you a new life, because God has endured suffering for your sake, now you, when you look at your brother and your sister, when you look at your church family, when you look at your father, your mother, when you look at your son or your daughter, when you look at your distant cousin, or when you look at the people in the community that haven't been treating you very well, when you look at anyone around you, here is what you do you pray. Love one another earnestly. You're self controlled, sober minded, for the sake of your prayers. Because praying for another is part of your responsibility. Do you pray for others? Don't leave grace ungiven. You have received the intercession of Christ. You have received Christ's prayers for you. John 17, he prayed about you so that you might have life and come to know the loving life of the Trinity. You who have received the benefit of Christ's prayers, pray for others. Pray that they might not fall into temptation. Pray that they might come to know who God is. Pray that they might be joined together in unity and love. Do not leave grace ungiven. Love one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices. You would sacrifice a goat or a lamb or a dove and you would sprinkle the blood on the altar and it was seen as a covering over of your sin, the mercy seat of God. You would put it on, or the priesthood anyway, he would put it on the, the, uh, the tabernacle, he would put it on the, um, the Ark of the Covenant and it was a covering over. Peter says, you as a royal priesthood, now your prayers, now your love, your love does that thing. Your love for another is the sacrificial act that covers over their sins. And it's not one that removes sin the way that Jesus does. That's only Jesus' job. But have you considered how much holding a grudge against another is like a weight that needs to be forgiven? Have you considered how putting love on a relationship covers over things and makes things good again? Do not leave grace ungiven. As Jesus himself was the full sacrifice for sin, surely you can love. Do not leave grace ungiven. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You who have received a home in Jesus. You you who have received new life. You who have received fellowship. He said, come in. You're part of the family. You're one of us now. You will inherit heaven and earth. The one who is hospitable, who opened his home. The one who was previously a foreigner, who now is at the father's side, says, I'm building you a house. Surely we... Can open our temporary homes and provide a meal. Surely we can welcome others into our circle and not grumble about it. After they leave, we don't have to close the door and roll our eyes and make a joke about that one thing they did that was just a little silly. Come on. They're a human being. And the things that they give you are more than just the items, more than just the time. They're giving of themselves to you. And as they're there with others, they're bringing out those aspects of others that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yes, people can be funny. Yes, people can do things that are silly. Yes, people can use the wrong towel in the bathroom Show hospitality without grumbling. Do not leave grace ungiven. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What have you received? Because it's got to be something. Surely you've received breath, and we know that. And you've received the use of your limbs, your arms, your legs. Some of us that becomes less and less over time. Some of us are never born with that use. But we may have other things as well. You may have a voice, you may have wisdom, you may have organizational gifts, or you may have the ability to teach and show others. as good stewards of the gifts you have received. Show others grace. Use that gift for their sake. Use it to serve one another. Do not leave grace ungiven. Whether it's your time or your your finances or your job, your connections with another person, whether it's a home or anything. What do you have that hasn't been given to you? And you might say to yourself, I, I worked hard for this. And that's true. And praise God that you've done so. But the way you worked hard was because God first gave you life. The way that you worked hard is because God gave you a mind. The way that you work hard is because, I mean... To be honest, God gave you the drive. You've met people who just don't have the same drive as you. And if you can think to yourself that you were able to work that into yourself, just ask a mom or a dad of teenagers. Everything you have has been given by the God who gives life. The God who made you and forms you, knit you together in your mother's womb as a good steward of the grace that God has given you, whatever way He has given you, because He has so many continents, He has so many seasons, He has so many creation created beings, we're still discovering species in the ocean. God of His varied, multifaceted rainbow grace has given you something. And when you give to others, You are showing them the face of God. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. God, through Jesus, spoke to us. And through that word, he continues to speak through each of us. Don't leave grace ungiven. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we finish our time, in the public proclamation of God's word, as we finish our time in preaching this morning, I want to. I mean, I hope I've done it. I hope I've placed before you a picture of who God is. And not just this abstract idea, but in the person of Jesus for your sake. For you and as you look at your brothers and your sisters around the room he did it for them too but he didn't just do it for them as an individual he did it for them through you regift what you have received you have the joy even if it is a responsibility let me tell you, my kids are a lot of work. They're a responsibility, but I love them. They might be tired at times when they want to play or run around, but the benefit that I gain, and not just them, from sacrificing time and effort and energy, God just continues To give his grace. Don't short circuit it. Don't end it too early. Don't leave grace ungiven. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org/sermons, and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.